when we are dealing with the rise of the so-called uh, religious fundamentalism. We should always, always bear in mind this. No matter how archaic it seems, like ISIS, ISIS, you know, like we just want faithful Islam. No, ISIS is purely a product of our postmodern global capitalist society. This is the basic insight on which we should insist. It doesn't mean, of course, I'm not an idiot, that we should celebrate ISIS. But we should be aware that this new religious fundamentalism, that there is nothing really archaic about it, even or especially when it appears or as when it pretends to signal a return to some lost origins. I would say, especially in religious history, true modernizations, breaks with the past, as a rule, appear as return to origins. For example, in Christianity, Protestantism, the radical break modernization, appeared as, of course, the return to original Christianity against uh, uh, Catholic, Roman, uh, corruption, and so on and so on. So that's my point. I'm not in any way defending. Tell uh, uh, to your son, their child, if I talk too loudly and I disturb him, tell him, tell me if I disturb him, I will try to speak more. No, no, because I always think that. Although, I love children precisely because they are really evil, I mean. <laughs> but it's a kind of innocent evil, you know. Let me give you an example. I hope I'm among friends, which really happened to me. I have a younger son who is now 14 years old. This really happened uh, a little time ago. I was mad at him. So I used a very vulgar Serb, Serb expression. We Slovenes don't have our own dirty language. We have to use another language, uh, which meant translated into English is uh, in Serb, Jeboti Pasmater, let the dog ask your mother. <laughs> you know what my son instantly answered? Remember, he was 14 years old. He instantly answered, this is what already happened 15 years ago, that's how I came. <laughs> he didn't need even 10 seconds to think, you know. And I love this innocent evil, you know. Like, it's not this fake political evil where you pretend you want to help humanity or whatever. You can just play, sorry, let's leave him alone, yes. Uh, I thought, I see from your child's age that he is already old enough to be corrupted by good computer games, I claim. <laughs> Maybe. Okay, sorry, sorry, let's go on. Uh, so, uh, this, uh, yes, uh, historicity. Uh, I'm not in any way, I'm not crazy defending fundamentalism. My insight is just this one, that fundamentalism is not a remainder of some dark past, but is something which exploit, exploded because of the antagonisms, tensions in the process of global capitalism. The proof, United States themselves, 
you know that according to FBI, they are observing almost 2 million Americans who are suspected of Christian fundamentalism. You know those who some 10 years ago or more bombed in Oklahoma building and so on. So, but this is practically the same percentage as in Arab countries. In other words, religious fundamentalism is something which is not even dependent of a specific culture. There is something, some deadlock, uneasiness in capitalist globalization which pushes people towards fundamentalism. I'm not saying that it's a progressive thing. I'm saying that we should always, and that would be the first lesson of Hegel, do what in Hegel's language we call a reflexive turn. Don't just judge things, ask yourself how you yourself are implied into what you criticize. For example, in Europe now we have the big debate what to do with refugees from Syria, uh, Iraq and so on, and especially Northern Africa. You have two basic positions, as you all know. The conservative, but usually associated sadly with lower classes, uh, anti-immigrant populist position, they are a threat to our way of life, let's close our borders and so on. And the opposite, the left liberal position, oh my God, we cannot allow people just to drown in the Mediterranean, uh, we should open our borders. I think both positions are deeply wrong. Also the second one. I think that this is typical left liberal game. They want to show their openness because they very well know that this cannot happen. If Europe were to really totally open its borders, you would have a kind of a conservative workers' revolution mixed with extreme uh, anti-immigrant violence and so on. We should begin with another question. Why all of a sudden in the last decade this explosion of immigrants? And then, if you look at it a little bit closer, you can see that we, not even we, I'm not part of them directly, but the Western superpowers are more or less directly responsible for it. Look, Iraq. Western intervention in Iraq created all this chaos in Iraq, Syria, because of which people fly from there. North Africa, Libya, it was that totally stupid intervention in Libya. I'm no friend of Gaddafi. I'm just saying to the honor of a good friend of mine, Alain Badiou, with whom I will return here in two months or one day again, he, I remember, warned me already before the intervention to Libya. He told me, are they crazy? Gaddafi will be replaced by some kind of chaos and there will be hundreds of thousands of, uh, of refugees and so on. Let's go further down. I remember uh, two, three years ago or more, there was uh, ethnic religious warfare in Central African Republic. The official story is Yes, the conflict between the Muslim uh, uh, minority in the Northeast and the Christian majority, or another of these primitive religious conflicts. But something there happened which you don't find, or very rarely 
you find it mentioned in our media, in the northeast uh, oil was discovered. And the one who was silently, discreetly behind this Muslim rebellion were the French. Because the Chinese already made a deal with the majority uh, uh, Christian group. So you see, apparently there is a wild ethnic primitive conflict. No, economic interest, not to mention the ultimate example, Congo, which is a state in total chaos and as such perfectly integrated into global market. So, you know, like uh, if we, or they, the Western superpowers, if they were stopped this uh, economic neo-colonial exploitation of black countries, most of these uh, refugees, their flow would have stopped. But again, my point is simply, don't just judge it. Ask yourself in what way we are included into it, in what way we are uh, part of it. And again, it's the same with religious fundamentalism. The true question is not, is there something specific? See, is a Muslim about it? Should we blame uh, the Muslims? No, the question is this one. I'm sorry if some of you know this example. I use it in some of my books already. I'm old enough to remember Afghanistan 40 years ago. It was one of the most tolerant uh, Muslim countries in the Middle East here. They had a relatively enlightened Western technocratic team. They had a relatively strong uh, uh, Communist Party even. They had great tradition of uh, religious tolerance. It was quite a custom there that all the big religions, Islam, there were some Christians there, Muslims, that they performed even their religious rituals together. And then it happened. You know, the Communist Party made the coup d'etat. When it was losing power, Soviet Union intervened. To counter the Soviet influence, Americans mobilized their agent. One of them is well known, Osama bin Laden, who was at that time supported by America. And you see the paradox. A tolerant, nice country become a fundamentalist nightmare because of the way it got involved into, uh, into world politics. It's the same in the United States. Is it translated here in Turkey, a wonderful book, very simple, descriptive, uh, uh, Thomas Frank, I think, What Happened to Kansas? It takes the story of, it's the story of Kansas, you know, over the rainbow, Wizard of Oz, one of the American states, which was still 30 years ago, maybe the most progressive American state. All great emancipatory movements against slavery, uh, 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 trade unions were done there. 30 years ago, it started to change. Now it's a bedrock of hardline Christian fundamentalism. This is, this is a problem today. So again, Yes, we should fight fundamentalism and so on, but we should move a step further and ask why is it that now fundamentalism is exploding? So again, this is the next Hegelian rule. Uh, as Hegel put it wonderfully in his great book, Phenomenology of Spirit, the evil is also always 
in the days which perceives evil everywhere. You know, it's not, you are never outside. You are, you are, uh, you are, you are part of it. So let's go a step further. But isn't a paradox here that uh, Hegel was a historicist, but isn't it that the same thing holds for Hegel also? It is no longer possible to write in this naive, idealist way as Hegel does. Absolute idea, everything is developed from the self-movement of the notion. Isn't this something that simply is the past? We cannot return to it. I claim it's more complex. I try to prove in my book that this is a false idea of Hegel, but the main reason, it's a political one, why, why I think we should return to Hegel today is that I think that our situation really resembles that of Hegel's time. What happened in Hegel's time was this. The French Revolution, the first big attempt at radical liberation, at least in the eyes of Hegel and others, went wrong. It ended in self-destructive terror. So Hegel's problem is we have to admit that things went wrong. But nonetheless, we shouldn't simply become reactionaries and say, okay, don't do any liberation, it just leads to terror, let's return to old times. No, Hegel's problem is how, in spite of this fiasco, deadlock, how to remain faithful to the project of enlightenment, liberalization, emancipation, and so on. And I think vaguely this is our position today. 20th century was the century of attempts of radical emancipation, mostly communist attempts. We have to admit it that although some of them did some good things, industrialization, education, or whatever, basically the communist attempt in the 20th century ended in a catastrophe, unheard of terror, and so on. And our problem should be and is exactly the same as Hegel's. Not to say, okay, it was the wrong way, let's remain where we are, good liberal capitalists. No. How can we, in spite of this terrifying experience, remain faithful to the emancipatory project? Not to betray it. Now you will say, why? Why don't we simply say, okay, the lesson is there is no alternative that the lesson of 20th century is, if you try to change the fundamental form of a society, you end up in murderous totalitarian dictatorship. Why don't we accept this? And this is another way of asking myself, why am I still in some sense a communist? I will say because I think that if things will go on the way they do, we are approaching a catastrophe. And I'm here in, at least, if not good, respectable company. Usually this idea that we already found the best possible world, just it's a matter of get, making it better, better, is associated with Francis Fukuyama, the end of history. But do you know that Fukuyama himself is no longer a Fukuyamaist? He now admitted that we confront today a series of problems 
biogenetics, ecology, financial capital, which it will not be possible to resolve them within the global liberal democratic capitalist network. So that's my problem. Of course, we still live, some of us, in relatively comfortable times, relatively. Capitalism is still thriving. Of course, uh, if you look from the capitalist standpoint, you can ask, but where is the crisis? Globally, it's mostly only Western Europe that is in crisis, no? Globally, capitalism is doing pretty well. But nonetheless, yes, it's doing pretty well, but there is a dark side to it. Again, I see a series of problems. Ecology, uh, financial capital, uh, intellectual property, uh, biogenetics, and so on. Where I think we are confronting here problems which will not be resolved not even controlled if we remain within the global capitalist system the way we have it now. Because you know what is happening today, more and more? It's the same paradox as at the beginning of modernity, European modernity. Remember, do you know that, for example, in 17th century, there were much more slaves than in 15th century? In the 15th century, Europe's slavery was more or less out. Then, the very explosion of capitalist order, which presented itself as based on human rights freedoms, led to an explosion of slavery. Black slaves working here, there, and so on. And isn't something similar going on today? It's not direct slavery, but as a snob, I like to visit these new ultra-developed countries like I was in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, uh, Qatar. These are slave societies. I did the elementary Marxist thing. I became friendly with a taxi driver who told me, friendly, okay. We started to talk, meet for a coffee, and he told me, listen, for free, you don't have to pay me, I will show you the other side. And he took me to those totally invisible uh, uh, housing where uh, immigrant workers work under terrible conditions with uh, passports. In real conditions of, well, basically it is slavery because they are not free to move. And all those rich emirates are based on slavery. Slaves are even already the majority. And it's really medieval logic because you don't even see them. They explain to me precisely in, in Dubai whom you see. You see Western managers, then you see mid-level immigrants from other Arab countries or more educated Asian countries who do the job where they still meet you, like hotel clerks, people who sell in shopping malls. But then there are those who, if you don't know how to look for them, you don't even see them. And then you have the fact of slavery in much of, of Africa. How is, for example, mining organized in Congo? It's forced labor, slaves. Not to mention uh, even China, gulags, and so on. So we, I claim, that's my pessimism, that we are approaching a new era where, how to put it, capitalism 
will no longer be able to follow its own democratic rules. You know, the standard functioning of capitalism is we have personal freedoms. You are free to do whatever you want. You can read whatever books you want, have sex whatever way you want. You can travel wherever you want if you have money. Of course. Now, problems begin. But what I want to say is that now capitalism cannot afford this. There is more and more need for larger and larger groups of people which are simply outside. And it's not just somewhere out there in uh, some Chinese gulag or Indonesia. You remember, was it reported in your media some two years ago, I think, a small town in the suburbs of Florence, Firenze, Italy, a small wooden building uh, burned and some 20, 30 Chinese died. Then they discovered that in that area, there are tens of thousands of Chinese illegal immigrant workers who effectively worked like slaves there. And that was a shock for us Europeans. It's easy to be sympathetic towards poor workers exploited in China or Indonesia. No, sorry, we have them there in the suburb of Florence, the very model of European high civilization and so on and so on. So, uh, again, what I'm saying is that uh, that's the problem today. If we do nothing, if we just say, let's, we are not living so bad, let's just go on slowly, slowly. I don't like what I see if we allow our societies to move spontaneously the way they do. Maybe it will not be a new catastrophe, but I claim we are approaching a new apartheid society. There are people who are in, there are people who are out. And there is even, why not put it like this, less and less democracy even. Democracy does survive, but in what form? Uh, I made this experiment often in the United States. I asked people when they claim to me, oh, why are you a communist? We are having quite a nice life here, we are free. I told them, okay, tell me precisely what do you mean by claiming I am free? And they always enumerated to me series of personal freedoms of choice, you know. I'm free means nobody will tell me what to do, I can go where I want, I can read what I want, I can listen to the music, what, whatever. This is a very nice thing, personal freedoms, I'm not against it. But I see two problems here. The first one is that in the authentic European tradition, which is not a monopoly of Europe, I, as coming from Europe, I try to isolate this, okay? Is that true freedom, it's not just I, as an individual, can do what I want at a personal level. It's that I'm well aware that I live in a certain social context, and I want more than to choose among the options that I have, those which I prefer. What if I don't like, what if I feel that the entire social structure is oppressive, inefficient. Freedom should always include a freedom of a collective social action to change society itself. And that freedom is disappearing, I claim. 
is becoming more and more unthinkable. And here you can see how ideology today functions in our everyday life. I don't know how much this is developed here in Turkey, but in the West, I admire the ruling ideology, how it presents you as new freedoms, the very form of unfreedom. For example, I don't know how it is again here with you, but in my own country, Slovenia, sorry, are you are smoking? Yeah, I found this uh, because I don't smoke, but my wife uh, is a chain smoker, and you know that this is the greatest compliment I can give to you, Turks. You know that in Slovenia, if somebody smokes like crazy, we say the everyday language expression, but you are smoking like a Turk, you know. <laughs> but you Turks are no longer smoking as a Turk, I discovered. You also have all this, you know. Uh, let me be clear. I don't smoke, yes, we should punish tobacco companies and so on. But isn't it obvious that much more than just a fear of cancer is in this anti-smoking campaign? I claim you can clearly discern a very well-articulated fear of the neighbor, neighbor in the sense of your neighbor people. This is the, our, maybe it's more Christian obsession with, you know, as Sartre put it, l'enfer c'est les autres, hell are others. The whole point of political correctness of fight against harassment is how to keep the other at a proper distance. So that whatever you do, you shouldn't come too close to me. What is usually called sex, I am against harassment when it really means rape, threat, and so on. But it often simply means keeping the other at a distance. So again, let me go on with this freedom and freedom. Uh, for another, not smoking, another example. In my country, with shock, I discovered that I was not aware. 45% of the people are already, how do you call it, precariat, with just precarious employment. And it's, of course, a horror if you are used to the old-fashioned working place, where, okay, you complain you are not well paid, but you have social security, health care, a stable job. This is now almost a privilege. More and more people what? You have to worry all the time, will I get a new contract or whatever, but the ruling ideology presents to you this as a new freedom. They say, you see, if you are not fixed, alienated, every year you can reinvent yourself again. And the, the, the nicest ideology here is the ideology of we are all capitalists. The idea is then this one. Let's say you are a poor worker who somehow gets a you get a credit of, I don't know, 20, 30,000 liras here, and then you are free to choose. Will you take your family to a big holiday? Will you invest it into university for your children? Will you take better take of your care? And the idea is this one. You see, you are acting like a small capitalist. You have a certain capital and you are investing it the way you want. You see how a situation which is in reality, the situation of terrible uh, anxiety, you cannot rely on it, you are not sure what happens, is presented to you as a new freedom. 
And this is why I think the category of the freedom of choice is a very ambiguous one. Of course, there is an authentic moment in it. Of course, I want to choose what books I read and so on and so on. But you know, there is a big problem about choices which are forced choices. First, these are choices where you don't even know the conditions of what you are choosing and so on and so on. So this would be my first point, that today uh, uh, freedom is more and more limited to this personal freedom of choice. On the other hand, and that's why I think we are right to protest all those Isa, Taisa, all those secret agreements. Are we aware what is happening here? Uh, things are negotiated. Agreements which will affect all of us in detail. If all these agreements, Tisa and so on, are enacted, then the coordinates of what our governments can do are severely limited. You cannot, for example, one of the secret clauses of this agreement is that, let's say a foreign company invests in Turkey under present laws. Let's say 10 years from now, you will get a new more leftist government which will raise the taxes for the rich company. According to this agreement, the company has the right to, to prosecute your state. And the judge is not Turkish Supreme Court, but some international monetary institution, whatever. What I'm saying is that fundamental decisions are being taken, half in secret. We learn about Taisa Tisa when WikiLeaks disclosed it. And in a totally non-transparent, non-democratic way. It's the same thing with us. You have a clear idea of this with Greece and uh, Brussels uh, negotiations now. Varoufakis told me he also wrote about this or talked about this in one interview. I love this detail. When he was negotiating Varoufakis in Brussels, he was negotiating with some body, some finance ministers. They called that body European board, something like this. That at some point, he got furious and said, what they are doing to us, it's illegal, it's blackmail, I want to prosecute you. And they looked at him and said, okay, try me, we'll see. Some bureaucrats left the room, come back one hour later and said, you cannot prosecute us, why? Because we don't exist. We don't have a legal status. And as I wrote in a text recently for New Statesman, this reminded me of China, today's China. Do you know, it's a beautiful data, that in today's China, Communist Party doesn't legally exist. A dissident, a friend of my friend, I met his friend, not him, did something crazy. He went to a court and, uh, how do you call it, uh, put a charge against Communist Party of China for the murder for Tiananmen massacre. You know what happened? Two, two months after, he got a reply, sorry, we cannot work on your charge, because we established that in all our registers, no organization called Communist Party of China exists. It's wonderfully done. You have an organization with no legal status, you know, this is which nonetheless controls everything. 
You know, Lenin spoke about dual power, state power, but also workers organized. Here you have a slightly different dual power. You have all the legal state apparatuses and so on. They, they endorse, they accept laws. They, but then you have the communist party structure, which has no legal status, but in an almost obscene way, everyone follows her. And in the same way, we are approaching this. What horrified me with this Greece-Earth negotiations? It's not okay. I don't think Greeks are innocent. They did exploit European Union and profit a lot. I'm not celebrating them as the heroes of independence and so on. I mean, everybody knows that Greece was till now a terribly inefficient clientelist state. But what I'm saying is that crucial decisions were taken. Who, to whom did the Greek representative spoke? To somebody which had no legal status, but nonetheless it decided about everything. That's, I claim, unfortunately, the type of uh, authority that we are, future that we are approaching. On the one hand, we have our personal freedoms, but the social context of our lives is more and more totally determined in advance. Let me go on. So, where do we have moved forward from Marx here? I think that you find all this developed much more widely in my books, also in this big, fat book. Uh, this was my dream, to write a book which is longer than the Bible, and I think I <laughs> succeeded. Everyone has small, obscene dreams, you know. Okay, let me go on. You know, for me, the problem with Marx, to simplify it very much, is that his commun the communist dream is still capitalism without capitalism. Marx was deeply fascinated by capitalist productivity, uh, immanent self-renovation. Uh, Marx wanted capitalism without what he perceived as the... Op Marx's idea is that at a certain point, capitalist relations become an obstacle to its further development. At that point, you have to make a social revolution and so on. I don't think that this works. I think that this obstacle is at the same time a condition of what it is an obstacle to. What do I mean by this? Now, okay, I'm a dirty old man, so I will give you a really problematic example, obscene slightly, so that you will get my point. Uh, some time ago, I was in Portugal, and an old lady, but not too old and still sexually attractive, voluptuous. I don't know was she flirting with me or what, but she told me, you know, my last lover, when he saw me naked, he told me that if one, if I would just have lost two or three kilos, my body would have been perfect. I told her, just don't do that. Because, you know, often when you have something which appears as a feature which spoils your beauty, but in reality it doesn't. Like, precisely insofar it, it, as it disturbs your beauty, it creates the vision of this beauty. I told to this lady, you lose two, three kilos, you will not have a perfect body. You will be just an average Noah. You need two, three kilos too much, 
so that people dream, oh, without these 2-3 kilos, you would be perfect. But you lose 2-3 kilos, you also lose perfection, you know. And so it's something like this was Marx's mistake, if I may put it like this. He wanted capital, capitalism without the 2-3 kilos of capitalist relations, you know. So we have to rethink again. I still think that Marx provided a wonderful definition of uh, uh, analysis of capitalist dynamics. But I think that his vision of revolution is obviously too short. If nothing else, the big problem is today, who is today's proletariat? Are these precarious workers? Are these the standard uh, working class? Are these the unemployed? Are these all those who simply live outside in countries which, like Congo, which are simply outside our so-called civilized relations. We have to rethink everything. The main point, again, I'm coming back to Hegel, uh, uh, the main point we should analyze is how, uh, and here we should learn something from Hegel. Marx knew it, but not always clearly. The material force of ideology. Ideology is not some high dream. No, ideology is our reality itself, in the sense of ideology is the way we, in our reality, live and interact with others. Marx made this very clear in his wonderful analysis of commodity fetishism, where it's clear for Marx that the illusion that is commodity fetishism is not in our perception. We follow this illusion when we interact on the market. You know, it's this very refined idea that our social reality itself can be structured like an illusion, but it's still reality. What do I mean by this? Let me give you now, I'm already probably talking too much. Where am I now? Could you tell me what's where? Time. 10 to 7. Okay, you know, as we learn from Derrida and deconstructionists, our big enemy is this metaphysical linear notion of time. So I will fight it by talking too much. Okay, so uh, do you know this story? It's a wonderful example of what I want to say, of this power of symbolic fiction. Jean-Pierre Dupuy is a wonderful French and American theorist of catastrophes. He recently published a wonderful short book, Economy and the Future, which you should pu publish. Otherwise, you will be arrested for sabotaging progressive theory. And he mentions a story, which is probably an old Arab story. But then, through him, Dupuy, it became popular. And even Niklas Luhmann, the famous German sociologist, wrote a book about it. You probably know it. The story of the 12th camel. Uh, the story is that a rich Arab merchant dies, okay, not too rich, and he leaves to his three sons 11 camels. He has three sons, he leaves to them as his heritage 11 camels, with precise instruction how they should be divided. He says, 
The first sum should get half of the camels, the second sum one third, and the third sum one sixth. Of course, you cannot do it. You cannot get five and a half camel. Then a wise judge comes and he says, I have a solution. I will add one camel of my own. And then they ask him, but will you get it back? He tells them, the three sons, don't worry. I add one camel. Now we have 12 camels. So now it works. The first son gets half. Half of 12 is six. The second son gets three. No? One quarter of 12 is three. And the third one gets two. One six is two. Now, remember, uh, uh, six, three, and two is 11. So one camel remains, I take it back. <laughs> and everything works out. You need, this is, my point is, of course, you don't even need in reality this camel. I claim maybe, since I am unfortunately some kind of atheist, maybe one of the, sorry, I don't mean to, uh, to, to, to be aggressive here, I mean it in a very benevolent way, maybe the 12th camel is one of the names of God, you know. God is like the 12th camel. You have to add it as a fiction so the things function, you know. But it doesn't matter if it exists or not. And I don't have time to go into it now, but my idea was precisely to develop this uh, logic of uh, necessary fictions, of how at some point things we need a lie to see the truth of a situation. You can, if you, like here, we have to invent another camel to do it. Let me give you <coughs> some simple examples. Did you see a film, which is not a great film, but interesting, leftist paranoia, Roman Polanski, The Ghost, based on the novel by uh, Robert Harris, where the story is wonderful, simple one. A journalist discovers that Tony Blair was from the very beginning trained, uh, was planted to the United Kingdom as an American agent. That his wife was a CIA agent and that Americans educated Tony Blair to have a perfect pro-American president. And uh, in a review of this film, some American newspaper, I forgot which one, said, although we know this is not true, but once you accept it, everything becomes clear. You know, like, this is what Tony Blair was effectively doing. Another example here, similar one. I remember when I was young in communist Yugoslavia, we had these political jokes, which incidentally were not so much in Yugoslavia as especially in Central European communist countries, like uh, uh, Czech Republic, East Germany, and Poland. They were excellent. When people asked me, did Europe lose anything with the fall of communism? I said, yes, the spiritual loss is the disappearance of good political jokes. Because they were not just jokes. They had an excellent melancholic spirituality. Like my favorite Polish one. Maybe you heard it. There was even a movie on this. This is the best definition of life that I know. What is life? Life is a disease 
which is transmitted by sex and always ends in death. Isn't this absolutely a true definition of life? Okay, so uh, I remember when I was young, we were obsessed by the idea that political jokes are not really subversive. Rumors were that there was an ultra-secret department of the secret police where they were fabricating political jokes. Not the jokes about the enemies, but the jokes about our own politicians. The idea was a very primitive one, but it seemed basically true. In this way, people, instead of protesting too much, were telling jokes to each other. In this way, they were able to express their anger. It made the situation much more bearable. Now, although, and I spoke with many people who, afterwards, when the archives were open, investigated this, unfortunately, no, there were no ultra-secret departments producing uh, political jokes, but nonetheless, there is something true in this idea. Precisely, the truth is that jokes, political jokes, played, played a constructive role from the standpoint of those in power. Or uh, my last example here, unfortunately, I think that Marx's idea, traditional of communism, is also this type of a lie. It's not true, it's a utopia. Not a utopia because it's too crazy, but utopia because it's not radical enough. But still, it allows us to see bourgeois capitalist society the way it really is, and so on and so on. Now, uh, to return to Hegel again, because what I wanted to do from here, I don't have time, but you find this in the book, is to go from this idea of necessary life to the idea of so-called counterfactuals. You know, like, you imagine not only how things are, but how things might have been. And the point is that the way things might have been is crucial for how things are. Things are not just what they are. What they might have been, but are not, is part of their definition. And I think in another book that you were kind or crazy enough to publish of mine on Lubitsch, I think I probably quote there the joke, which is for me, I'm sorry if you know the story, the best Hegelian joke that I know, a very simple one. It's from Ernst Lubitsch's film, Ninochka. The joke you must know, it's a very simple one. Uh, it's a joke told as a joke within the film. A guy enters a cafeteria and says, can I have coffee but without cream? You know what the waiter answers? Sorry, we ran out of coffee, but we still have milk, so I can only give you coffee without milk. I cannot give you coffee without cream because we don't have it. You see, this is what Hegel means by determinate negation. Although it's materially the same, but the same, just pure coffee, but coffee without milk, it's not the same as coffee without cream. It, you see, part of the definition of an entity is what it negates. And in the same way, then, I wrote that I didn't have time to read it in the book, to develop this idea of multiple narratives, that what one has, the story that one tells, should always be read against the background of other stories. And the best example for me is 
from the Bible, you remember, you must, the seven last words of, 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 uh, of Jesus Christ. You remember, like, uh, what are they? I don't know. It's finished, uh, I'm thirsty, uh, 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 forget them, they don't know what they are doing, blah, blah, blah. I think it's totally wrong, and this is why the two religious films, Mel Gibson's Passion at, and the one which is really Franco Seferelli's, which are disgusting, are wrong, they try to construct one linear narrative. First, Christ says, I'm thirsty, then he gets a drink and says, now it's finished, and so on. No, the point is that all of them are true, but not at the same level of reality. And the truth is not one of them. You know, it's precisely one has to think this, uh, this one has to think this, as it were, this multiplicity as original. And this, I think, is again so terribly important today when we live under pressure of what I cannot but call enemy propaganda. It's not the old-fashioned communist propaganda. But what are we repeatedly told, like the Greece was told recently? It's what, with a feminine name, we designate as Tina. T-I-N-A. There is no alternative. The one big message to Greece was, sorry, don't even dream about it, there is no alternative. Or, as they put it in a nicer way, every alternative will mean just catastrophe, economic chaos or whatever, and so on and so on. And things are really getting crazy because, as I've written repeatedly, I know closely Syriza. And it's crazy. If you look at what Varoufakis and others wanted from Europe, it's something which 50 years ago would have been a very elementary, modest, middle-of-the-road social democratic program. In what crazy times do we live so that what half a century ago was a totally acceptable social democratic program, much less radical than what at that time they were doing in Sweden, today you are proclaimed crazy, radically leftist, lunatic or whatever. So uh, in these times when, again, enemy propaganda, as Alain Badiou put it nicely, the goal of enemy propaganda is not to destroy the enemies, police is doing this, it's to destroy hope. Enemy propaganda tries to convince us no change is possible. It will only make things worse and so on and so on. Here I think we should, uh, here we should at least learn to dream, but to dream in a correct way, because dreams are a very dangerous thing. I now finished a new text, the title of which is The Need to Censor Our Dreams. You know, because precisely when we dream about a different society, we usually reproduce all the prejudices and so on and so on. So again, why do we have to learn this? Because you know what makes me sad? For example, Greece. It's easy to bring one million people to the street to demonstrate I'm tired of this left triumph and then we all cry out of pleasure, so beautiful, sublime, one million people. The only thing that interests me more and more is the day after. Like, the true measure of social change are not the ecstatic moments we were all there, but 
How will the change be felt well, weeks later when things return to normal? For example, with you here, I'm not making fun of your, uh, of your uh, geza or whatever demonstrations, no? Taxing square demonstrations. It was something, like I claim the results of the last elections, uh, the success of PKK and uh, the Social Democratic Kemalist Party, however you call them, something did remain. Even in Egypt, something did remain. Friends are telling me Egypt is nonetheless not the same as before. You have civil society, trade unions, students, feminists. But don't you agree with me that I don't like just these big, pathetic explosions? I mean, we should, you know, it's easy to oppose capital. That's the tragic limit in big demo you know for me this was the worst greek tragedy what happens two weeks ago almost theater of the absurd as my friend Satis kuvlakis said you had on sunday big referendum no and next day the government does exactly the opposite the government which was i don't blame them syriza incidentally if you ask me personally i think they did the right thing in making this compromise, although it makes me terribly sad, because they told me that the situation was so incredible, probably, if they were to do Brexit. Varoufakis thinks that for at least the next two, three years, the standard of living would have fallen for another minimal 30%. There would have been hunger, chaos, probably, uh, right-wing demonstrations and so on, but it was a total deadlock, a tragic situation, and that's the problem today. It's easy to have demonstrations for democracy, this right, those rights, but then you touch a certain limit, capital, when you really disturb the capital. At that point, things get serious. And just a very short, uh, you are now my superego, conclusion. <laughs> I also think that, you know, I never liked this leftist mantra uh, against the representative democracy. I know it has its limits. We should be active, engaged, and so on. Well, first, let's be frank. Majority is never really engaged. I hope you were aware of this. Even when you had your great moment, Statsman Square and so on, let's be frank. You had what? Maybe 20, 30% support. Maybe more in Istanbul, but not all around. Like in, in, sorry, less even, yes. And we should be aware, and I don't despise ordinary people. My God, they are desperate. They, their worries, how they will survive. So, uh, what I, my society, the society which we should fight for, it's not some stupid society where every afternoon we would be engaged in some local democracy, how we provide for children, for healthcare. I want an anonymous society where things function, some anonymous machinery does it, and I can do my dirty job that I enjoy, read, write books, and so on. I think we should stop with this obsession of permanent engagement. We have to learn passivity. And to conclude, now really conclude, with a joke, I warn you, it's a softly dirty joke. I hope I'm not repeating myself, but there are so many people here, majority of you did not see. Uh, an example of what I mean by passivity. 
two years ago, I think, maybe some of you know it, I'm sorry, Guardian magazine asked me a stupid question. Uh, is sexual romance still possible today? And my answer was yes, but how? You know that in sexuality you have now all those plastic instruments, plastic penis, vibrator, and I claim this would have been true mo modern sex. I make a date with the lady. Okay, we will make love. Then, uh, on the top of it, you must probably, I hope you know, we not only have these vibrators, we also have, they have a terrible name, stamina training unit, plastic vaginas, which you also put on electricity and they shake and you have all possible entrances, anus, mouth, okay. My ideal sex would be this one. I come there with my stamina training unit, lady comes at a date with her plastic penis, and we connect with electricity both machines, we put plastic penis into vagina, and the two machines are buzzing, enjoying each other. And then I sit down with the lady and we have tea and it's wonderful. We have no duty to enjoy, machines are already enjoying there. And then the journalist asked me, but where is romance here? Sex. I said, okay, we talk and talk, and maybe at some point when I pour tea to her, our hands meet and they meet more and who knows? Maybe even we end up in bed, but without any pressure, you know. We already did our duty to sex. Machines are doing out for them. And this is a serious problem, because I don't know how it is with you, but in Western Europe, where we live in hedonism, all my psychoanalytic friends are telling me that the problem today is not prohibition. The problem is that patients feel a kind of a social command, it's your duty to enjoy if you don't have good sexual pressure. So the big task here is to get rid of this pressure to enjoy. The task of psychoanalysis today is not to get you rid of paternal prohibitions so that you have to enjoy. No, what you have to get rid of is this pressure to enjoy. You know, we have to learn to, to step back, to take a distance. Maybe we are even uh, in some way too much engaged today. Sometimes reflection, a moment of reflection is crucial because what is happening today? Are we aware in what strange times we live? What is happening with ecology? What is happening, I always repeat this, I'm fascinated, brain sciences and, and biogenetics. My God, we are only able to connect our brain to machines and so on. Everything will change. What does this mean? We don't know it. The time for patient thinking is now. That's why I think more than the time for Hegel, it's, sorry, more than the time for Marx, it's today a time for Hegel. Hegel's dogma is when you try to do something, things always go wrong. And then problems begin. How you, you have to do it the second time, you know. And that's our task today. I'm, very grateful to you for this patience. I also enjoyed this class privilege, you know. There are those who are in the shadow and there are those who are not in the shadow. So I was privileged, but I'm really grateful for your patience. Thank you very much.
I thought that you did it in a good communist Stalinist way, that you distributed the questions and now you organized everything. Yes, because you know, this is a nice joke. Uh, some 25 years ago, I spoke in my country with an old communist. And I asked him, are you afraid or, or do you allow a free debate? He said, no, we communists want to hear what people think. We like free open debates. But we know that in order to prevent enemy provocations, free debate has to be especially well prepared. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I can easily respond to you, especially as a Leninist, because the great you, we can accuse Lenin of whatever we want, terrorism and so on. But in national question, he was radical. You know that Lenin even had a debate with Rosa Luxemburg. Rosa Luxemburg's position to simplify it was Russia should give uh, autonomy or independence to small nations, but only if the good guys win there, you know, our allies. And Lenin said, no, it doesn't matter. Finland, Baltic Republic, even if reactionaries take power there, we should give all of them freedom. Which is why it's important to know already in 22, Stalin attacked Lenin as bourgeois liberal nationalist because of this. And uh, this is why it made me a little bit sad when I saw a year ago or when demonstrators in Kiev destroying Lenin's statues. Okay, I understand them. Lenin was for them Soviet Union. But nonetheless, do you know that Ukraine as a nation didn't exist before Bolsheviks. In Tsarist Russia, they didn't have their language. It was prohibited. Only Russian was, and so on. It's Bolsheviks in 1920s that established Ukraine as a full nation, with their own language, universities, literature, and then Stalin counterattack in early 30s. So precisely as a Leninist, I would say, I, can, I don't know in detail the situation, but I would say I don't know what the concrete solution should be. But definitely, not only freedom to curse, but even some kind of, I don't know how to do it formally, informally, unification. Why not curse in Syria, in Iraq, in Turkey, somehow? I'm not saying anything against any of the existing States. And now I must apologize to my Turkish friends because when I was here years ago, I made some unfortunate remarks about progressive aspects of Ottoman Empire. And they go, are you crazy? And so on. No, but what I found attractive in the idea of Ottoman Empire is precisely that it was multinationally much more open, confederate. Don't forget that the two crimes, as it looks, committed by Turks, Armenian genocide and, of, uh, and the uh, treatment of Kurds, as far as I know, this began precisely with young Turks, that is to say, when Turkey wanted to imitate a modern Western nation state. So, you know what I mean? 
I'm not idealizing. It was a decadent regime, horrible. I don't have any soft spot for Ottoman Empire. Ottoman Empire is for me just the same as in my country, Austrian-Hungarian Empire. It was horror, but it was a much more tolerant multinational unity. In this sense, of course I support it. I just don't know enough to, I don't know the, what would have been for me the best solution. One solution, but I know totally dreaming, would have been Kurds from the north of Iraq joining Turkish Kurds and making an autonomous republic, maybe within a larger Turkey, maybe I don't know which whom. You know, this is political contingency, but absolutely, I absolutely support it. I think that the only, Lenin made this clear, that the only true internationalism goes through this recognition of nation's rights. And Lenin also, we should also be very careful about something else. Quite often, when you have a big nation and a smaller oppressed nation, this nation can be even worse towards its own minorities down there. Like my uh, Canadian friends, and they are French Canadians, Quebec, told me that although Quebecois, Quebec people, wanted independence against English oppression, but they are much more brutal towards Eskimos and Indians, towards their own, you know. So here things are uh, very sensitive, and uh, uh, I, I, I'm, here, I'm, here, I'm here pretty open. I think that uh, national ethnic autonomy functions perfectly in global capitalism, so I don't think there is even anything very revolutionary here. I think that the frame of global capitalism is no longer nation-state. So I don't see, uh, some people even think maybe they are right, that we are approaching a model of nation-states, which is the mega success story today. Singapore, which is a nation-state. I heard in China that there are tendencies in the more developed South, Shanghai and so on, to, uh, to develop it. So again, I'm now just uh, uh, turning in circle, repeating myself, but my point would have been that maybe this is a dream, but a truly great Turkish politician should have invented a formula in which full autonomy of Kurds would make Turkey stronger. It can be done, I claim, in a way, with intelligent politics. It's false dilemma. Either you screw the Kurds or they threaten your identity. This is not necessary. This choice is necessary only within a certain uh, logic. So yes, all my sympathy. What can I say? I mean, no. You know, you always talk about how the leftists go crazy over some things at some point and that they need to buy an alternative society, but then they talk about it in the future as a Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, like, what I think is that nowadays there needs to be kind of like a, because the real socialism project, real socialism failed. Yeah. And leftists are always kind of bringing that back into the picture. So, Nowadays, capitalism. But sorry, I will immediately give you the word back. You know, the paradox is that not only it failed, but, and this is for me the ultimate perversion, 
in most of the countries where old communists are still in power, they are the most brutal managers of capitalism. That's the paradox. I mean, this is what I told once to Fukuyama. I said, okay, you won, but are you aware that Chinese Communist Party is the best manager of it? Sorry, please. My point is that what, what needs to be done, in my opinion, is that uh, we need to have new paradigms that we can maybe mystify as well to give to the people. No, I agree with you deeply. That is to say, first, I like that you use the words paradigm, paradigm, because that's how I play with my Greek friends. I tell them the big name now is syntagma squares. You know, syntagma means in linguistic syntagma, but it's also constitution. And I told them, you need to move from syntagma to paradigma. <laughs> syntagma are big demonstrations. Then where is the paradigma then? Where is the new paradigm? And here there is the poverty of the left, I claim. So I was going to bring it back to the Kurdish issue and was going to say that they have a new paradigm. Do they? I'm glad, no, it's not a cynical, skeptical yeah, question. Yeah. I would like to know, do they tell they, you? They, they have what is this paradigm? I mean, it's based on my books and it's called Democratic Confederalism. So instead of calling it socialism, they call it Democratic Confederalism. It's not as anti-capitalist maybe as mm -hmm. real socialism, but nonetheless, it, it manages to take people behind it, you know? So it, it creates a mass movement and it gives purpose to the people. Okay, but I still am, you know, I work level skeptical first. It would do to Kurdish people a lot of good, I don't doubt it, but what will be, will it be anything more than just a new successful unit in global capitalism? That, that, that was going to be the question. It's an experimental thing, it's open-minded at least. Yeah. So, I mean, I was going to ask you what you think about the project in Rojava or what the BKK... Well, I will not uh, blast my way here. Okay. I mean, I don't know enough about here, but maybe this will be an answer. I don't like the left, like in Greece, that official, they have also a three-letter communist party, which is a very radical Stalinist one. For them, the traitor is not Gorbachev, but Khrushchev. They still celebrate, and their position is, Syriza is social democratic reformists, we should wait for the authentic proletariat revolution. I claim, yes, you wait and do nothing. I claim that today, in the situation that we are, our procedure should be this metaphor I propose. The art today is not to wait for a big radical change, but to do small steps which may even appear totally acceptable. But in reality, once you try to do this, you will have to do more and more. I will give an example here which may surprise you. I still have a certain fondness for President Obama. I know all the stupid things he did or didn't do, but the debate on universal health care that he triggered in the United States was obviously such a shock, you know. Republicans brought him to Supreme Court and so on. The greatest American actor, Chuck Norris, you remember, proclaimed him a communist or whatever. You see, in the United States, to talk about universal health care, it's a very radical move. And what I like about it is that it appears a very modest question. You can say, wait a minute, uh, Western Europe has it, Canada has it, 
You know, it's like, I will give you this metaphor that I like. I like this naive science fiction stories where, as they say, you press a wrong button, you know. You think it's just one button, you press it, and then water here, everything disappears around you. It happened in one of my early books, I record on it. Sorry, it's an old story, maybe some of you know it, but it's my favorite book. Once I was with friends staying in a small flat in Paris, and there was a cold wave, everything was frozen. I went to the toilet, I flushed the water at the end. And later, it was easy to explain what was frozen, defrozen. But the effect for me was horrible. All I did is I pushed the button, the water to flush. Then the water went on, on, the water started to drop from the top. At the end, the whole apartment was flooded. Uh, 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 police had to come to take me out on their hands because they were afraid that water was already dangerous. But you see what I mean? You press something, everything falls, you know? We have to find such, like, in the United States, this is one point. In Europe, obviously, the Greek demands were such points. And I totally agree here that what Kurds are demanding there is another such point. We should not be afraid of apparently modest demands. I learned this also from my uh, communist past where we were. Okay, not big, but small dissident. And we learned this in communism. To make, at least at the end, when nobody believed in communism, to make a big demand, end of communism, uh, uh, capitalism is better, you didn't risk a lot, because you threatened no one. But if you just said, that functionary should step down, we should repeal that law, a very modest thing. It was much more dangerous, you know? Often, apparently, modest proposals are much more dangerous, because they really trigger a movement. So again, in this sense, all I can say without knowing any details, because you know, I'm a decadent guy, I watch my films and so on. For me, reality is something which imitates films but fails, you know, so I cannot give a concrete, <laughs> concrete uh, judgment. But basically, I agree with you. I'm against false radicalism precisely because I am a radical. I want to, you see, the Greek Communist Party with its radicalism did nothing. Syriza, with its modesty, at least it did introduce some movement. I came, uh, the first comment uh, is, uh, uh, there was a point of opinion, I think the, 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 I see the success of the communists as a... The international, the big international, also their song, and I think... Uh, you mean the old communists, uh, yes. international, yes. yes. And uh, the, uh, the, the way Lenin looks like, he looks like a Tatar. And uh, I think he... But he was one, yes, yes, one quarter of the world. Yes, because uh, the town he, uh, he studied was Kazan, which is now the capital of the Tatarstan and so on. Uh, and I think uh, it's, uh, it's also uh, nationalism is a, a result of the uh, French Revolution. 
and also it brings the Nazis and so on. So uh, I think it's better we leave all the nationalisms and also the ethnic nationalisms behind us. Yeah, but you know, I see your point. But my problem is this one. From where are you saying this? For example, in ex-Yugoslavia, the Serbs, I have nothing against them, but who were the biggest nation, were also saying this because they knew if we leave this aside, they win. <laughs> in China, the Han majority is also saying this. You know what I mean? You cannot simply leave it behind. Because when you leave it behind, you have to have some common language shared medium. Who will determine that medium? Another thing I want to answer, when you said Lenin, uh, Tatar, and so on. You know what fascinated me in, uh, uh, in Russia terribly? How, uh, if you ask Russians, where did Stalinism come from? You get two totally opposed answers from Eurocentrics and many Western people, they claim, oh, Stalinism came because revolution happened at the wrong place. If it were to happen in Western Europe, it would have been democratic. In Russia, because of its Asiatic past, primitive people, it was that. Now it's so interesting, if you talk with conservative Russians, they give you exactly the opposite story. They say the tragedy of Russia is that every 100, 200 years, uh, a despot wants in a brutal way to westernize, modernize. First it was Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible, then it was Peter the Great, at the end it was basically Stalin. So for them, uh, Bolshevism, communism, is not authentically Russian, but it's a brutal Western modernization. And you see, uh, so again, I think that uh, both of them are in a way right, but I think there is, here I agree maybe with you, that it's, there is more truth in the Western, sorry, in the, in the, this Russian reaction, because uh, I never liked this racist idea of, you know, uh, uh, only we in the West can really understand democracy, you know, and Greeks are my mega friends now, but I must tell you that when I was in Greece 15 years ago, I will not name them, of course, some of my Greek friends, radical leftists, privately told me, like, but you know, we have to admit it, democracy for some people and for some others is not. And then I told him, okay, cut the bullshit, two is two. Basically, <laughs> is for us, Greeks, but not for the Turks. You know, I mean, it's incredible how even with leftists who appear to be so progressive or whatever, you, you encounter a certain limit. You encounter a certain limit here. No? So again, I agree with you. I am totally, if you want, an internationalist. I only know that, you know, there is internationalism and internationalism. I mean, for example, and I don't care, we were a city nation then, but the right-wingers, even now in Slovenia, always bring out what not so much Marx and Engels wrote against Southern Slavs. Engels uses a wonderful metaphor. He says, no wonder these nations are reactionary when their very existence is a reaction, like a remainder of an ancient past, so they will have to disappear. And 
Angels then ironically says, because at that time they were building this, uh, uh, how do you call it, uh, railway to Turkey, no? He said, okay, we should give them autonomy, but not the right to mesh with pan-European uh, 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 railway to Turkey, you know? Turkey, you were the good guys, Germany was the good guys, all in between were bad guys. So, you know, like, uh, you know, this is one of the lessons of Hegel. Something appears a neutral universality, but then you look closely and you see that this universality is not really neutral. Ah, sorry, another argument that you find from, it's very interesting one because it's true, from Russians who claim that Bolshevism is not Russian. It's true, but I find this rather sympathetic. You know that if you look at the original national structure of Cheka and then NKVD, Soviet secret police, you know that at the beginning, the strongest groups were Baltic people and Jews, 60-70%. Only in Stalin's time, Russians became a majority there. Of course, for conservative Russians, this is the proof that, you know, Russia was, Russians were the victims and so on and so on. So again, generally, I agree with you, internationalism, especially because I claim we are approaching a state where we will no longer be able to solve problems at national level. Look, I was telling this to my friends before. I spoke with that guy, Fuk uh, no, Fukuyama, Dupui, uh, 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 who told me, do you know that when Fukushima exploded, for one day, Japanese government was in a panic. They thought they will have to remove the entire Tokyo area that is been too contaminated. Can you imagine how to do this? Where? It wouldn't be possible to remain on Japanese islands. Probably they would have to ask Russia for some Kamchatka or whatever. So what I'm saying is that ecological topic is one of the eras, sorry, one of the domains where it's no longer a question of national identities. We have to do it together or we will die together. And just if I finish with this old improvisation of mine, I like ecology as an example of how ideology functions today. I don't know how much is it developed here in Turkey, but in my country, in Western Europe, America, the predominant ecological ideology is this one. It serves perfectly big capital. They tell you, don't criticize society, that's easy. Ask yourself as an individual, what did you do against ecology? Did you recycle all Coca-Cola cans? Did you put all newspapers? And, so? and this is wonderful operation. It blocks you, it makes you feel responsible personally, so that then, instead of confronting the big problems, our industry and so on, you, as an obsessional, you put all the newspapers aside and so on, and then even you feel satisfied. You see, I did my duty towards Mother Nation and so on, and no one is disturbed, just you feel better and so on. No, in ecology precisely, we should not individualize it in this way, like, what, what did you do? No? I mean, the problem is not that, it's ridiculous to, to mention this. Ecology is, I think, uh, a problem which is a mega serious problem, but at the same time full of 
ideology, of mystification, and so on. Hi, hi. Uh, how you doing? Uh, I'm still alive, unfortunately, yes. Well, that's actually my question. Uh, what? How can I kill myself? No, 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 you're, please don't. You're such an intense guy, and I've been listening to your lectures for years, I'm sure everyone else yeah. has. What do you do to relax? <laughs> I no, not, I mean, unfortunately, seriously. I'm not kidding. Uh, once or a week, at least once a month, I go to emergency ward for having fake heart attack, for having panic attacks, and so on and so on. No, 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 it's, uh, you know, I'm imitating a little bit, you know, that ridiculous racist image of a, of a, a maniacal depressive Russian. It's active, active, and then it's down. Well, you see me when I'm active, no? I can guarantee you that one hour from now, I will be in the hotel room, uh, maybe reading a good South Korean detective novel, probably. No, <laughs> no you know, uh, seriously, now, you know how I do it? I learned to disconnect, you know? That's why I like, you know what's my idea of paradise? That once I flew, I don't know from what country to what, there were some flights were cancelled, and for two days I stayed, I think, in Los Angeles, but they didn't go to the city, at the airport, in an anonymous hotel room for two days. No one knew me there, it was paradise. I was just reading, listening to music, and so on, you know. I want to be disconnected. I think cell phones. Cell phones are for slaves. You are accessible. I disconnect my... I connect my cell phone when I want to call others. I don't want to be disponible to others, you know. So again, the, the, that's why I have, as you must have felt it ten minutes ago, this aversion against engagement, you know. No, I want to live in peace. And I hate this fake idea, this is how Bill Gates talks, like, oh my god, children are starving in Africa, how can you, and so on and so on. It, this may sound horrible, because of course I don't need literally. But a certain, at a certain point you should say, fuck that, even if all children in Africa drop dead, I want to relax, you know. That's the only way to really help them. And now he's giving his secret Freemason communist studies. <laughs> Hello. Um, although, although it doesn't have any, any concrete solutions yet, uh, what do you think of the Zeitgeist movement proposed by Jack Fresco and his friends? I will tell you something horrible. I will not bluff. I bluff enough otherwise. Except knowing the names, I don't know anything about it to give a qualified uh, document. I'm very narrow, you know, I read, I feel almost obscene mentioning politics because when I write or talk about politics, it's all kind of a common sense, everyone should know it. My love is with Hegelian theory, psychoanalytic theory, and so on and so on. I would love to live in a society where I wouldn't have to deal with politics, but just with totally abstract theory. So, uh, uh, I, uh, and I think, again, we need, I think we need more of that. That's why, to give to you the last provocation, also, I also need to use it, sorry, for, you know, everybody praises that uh, 
statement by Marx, you know, thesis 11, philosophers have only interpreted the world, the point is to change it. The greatest stupidity that was ever told. First, who were these philosophers who only wanted to interpret it? None of them. Plato wanted to change. All great philosophers have a plan how to change it. I know only one philosopher who didn't have such a plan, Hegel. And he contributed most to really change it. So I think we shouldn't be terrorized by this attitude, which is today deeply conformist, you know. Things should be useful. No, all great inventions of humanity happened as a byproduct. You didn't tell to you yourself, I want to do something useful. You just played by an idea and by some strange change as a byproduct of. This is a wonderful point with which I, if I understood you correctly, I deeply agree. Because I use this example, and I was already physically once attacked by some ecologists because of this. When I make a simple statement, and some friends of mine told me that it's even, as far as they can tell, empirically true. Namely, I claim the majority of people who buy organic apples, whatever, they don't buy it because they really believe it's better. They buy it because it makes them feel better for ideology. My God, you see, I did something for Mother Earth. I'm part of a great movement. And yeah, 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 it's an extra product. You pay more for ideological effect. Isn't it wonderful? I did something and so on. It's, it's idiot. And my, here I'm evil. It's probably not true. But my idea is that, let's say I'm growing apples. First, I select all the beautiful apples and I sell them as normal, corrupted, whatever. Then the half-rotten apples, I double the price and sell them as ecological apples. <laughs> I always have a, no, it's not as simple as that, I know. But what you said, you know when you have this effect even worse? I hate when people present to you this they call them sustainable houses, you know, where uh, uh, solar electricity or... Yeah, but you know that to produce one such house, you spend more energy than the whole worker's block. I spoke with a very intelligent German ecologist. I love him. Who told me, from a real ecological standpoint, the best thing would have been not these ecological houses in the middle of the forest, but people living in big crowded cities like Istanbul all packed there because you know if, if we are all here we mostly pollute each other and much of nature remains clean this ecologically correct housing each of us a small house we produce water from the local streams ecological catastrophe it's over I mean I mean the old second thing uh, I think we should get rid of, no, first what you said, yes, again this, that, yes, definitely, that's the problem for me, not only with ecology, but even more with political correctness, for example, harassment, of course, my God, women, my, minorities are harassed, I totally agree, but you know, if you visit many American academic institutions, you can see that there is a much more obscure and dark ideological dimension. When all these well-paid professors talk about harassment, 
they are really afraid of coming too close to lower classes. Because when they talk about violence against women, talking dirty, they mean the poor people who don't have these exquisite manners and so on. So for example, it's so and so on, but you are not allowed to say black person with them, you should say African American, you are not allowed to say Indian, you should say Native American, incidentally a term which Indians hate. Because they say, we are Native Americans, so you white are cultural Americans, or what? You know, they are well aware. So what I'm saying is that uh, the, the lesson I'm getting from you, and I agree with it, is how behind all these pseudo-emancipatory movements, ecology and so on, there are so many class and uh, class investment, ideological investment, we should, be, uh, we should be very careful about it. And again, that's my problem with uh, political correctness. For example, once I was interrupted in the United States, it's an old story, must know it, when I was telling a dirty joke. And I told them, but are you afraid what you are doing now? All working class, ordinary people that are now in my country talk like that. When you oppose this type of talking, you are basically asserting your safe upper middle class existence. It means no contact with, and then I, you know, some of you maybe know her, Amy Goodman, that democracy now. Okay, I love her and so on. But she is mad at me, she no longer now wants to talk for some years with me, because once she was crazy enough to invite me to her talk show, and then she asked me, how should we fight white racism, right-wing racism? I told her, through left-wing racism, no? And then she thought it's a bad joke, but then I told her, no, listen, when you meet people from another ethnic group, isn't it the only way to establish real contact with them? to exchange some obscenities and so on. Without this, you have this nightmarish politically correct respect. Oh, what interesting food you have. Oh, what interesting folkloric songs you have. I want dirty jokes. I'm not interested in your original food or whatever, you know. And that's why my greatest friends are people from third world countries who master who know this game, like, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, I have some good friends, some artists from New Zealand. Their official ideology is, you know, you Western rationalists, you don't hear how nature is talking to us, the spirits of rivers, of mountains, all that bullshit. Then, after I become friendly with them, they told me the truth. Yeah, yeah, they play the artists who talk with nature and so on. But then they have two agents, one in London and one in New York, who inform them of what are the latest trends. And then they took well care that what nature is telling them to do rhymes with the latest fashion in New York, you know. And I totally agree with them. I mean, I mean, you know, I hate rich people who come to Africa and say to poor people there, oh, you can be lucky, you live an authentic life, non-consumerist. No, I like people who say, no, I want to be more consumerist than you. I mean, for example, uh, my, I made a visit in Sao Paulo to a favela slum there. I haven't seen so much kitsch as there. All some kitschy, golden, cheap, pseudo-golden, yellow models and so on, and so on, you know. So I think that when somebody tells you, 
Let's step out of consumerism. We should have simple, uh, functional forums. I'm sure he is upper-class rich guy, you know. Poor people like kids and so on. I'm not saying we should all become like that. I'm just saying how much secret class dimension is there in this, even in pseudo-respect for the poor and so on. Yeah, that's a good idea, yes. Hello. Uh, you will be Turkish or English? It will be English. Okay, thank you. So, first of all, thank you for this amazing lecture. When you begin like this, you are already sharpening your knife. Go directly. <laughs> So, uh, the questions that I have, uh, I think you already somehow answered in this uh, lecture, but I just want you to open it up yeah. in a better way, because I'm personally from Georgia, the country... Ah, Gruzia, yeah, yeah, yeah. The country of Stalin that we don't like. Stalin, Beria, my friend from there is a nephew of Beria, but that's another story. We are mostly ashamed of these people. But, um, anyway, yeah. uh, the reality is that uh, in Georgia also we have this problem that is very contemporary, I think, with the social media and so on, we have this explosion of social movements. And uh, they are most of the time carrying some values. And uh, at some point, uh, these values uh, hit this um, capitalist economy. Mm -hmm. This is where they block. The best example for me of these social movements, and uh, we got uh, really inspired from this Gezi event in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. That was really lots of people and lots of intellectuals, and uh, mm -hmm. as a mount, people also, everything was supporting it, but uh, as you said, it didn't make any change, you know, it just, when it hit it, this kind of economy, yeah, it yeah, just yeah. stopped, and we see it's just, we just have a good memory, nothing else. So it's just a kind of a question that, um, uh, would you just open up this uh, issue, like, uh, then what is the role of the urban citizen, if uh, not this, and how it has, has to happen, like, here you just say that we just have to step back and relax? No, and just no, no, relax. I'm saying it's the first, more reflex than relax. Don't be afraid of thinking. Second point that I indicated is, I do believe in these small demands, apparently small demands, like universal health care here, here, and so on and so on. Third uh, thing is that even capitalism is not totally determined. Look, for a lot of time, I thought that the presidency of Lula in Brazil is just another cheap social democracy. But now my leftist friends convinced me, my God, he did diminish poverty by over 30%. I mean, you can, you know, even capitalism is full of its own contradictions. It's not totally predetermined. You can, you, you, you have spaces to act a little bit here and there. Yeah, but let's speak directly on the real facts. Like, if you were back during the events and it's big point, like, what could you do there? If I were to be here. Yeah, and if you were, let's say, supporter and here in this place, like, how would you criticize at this point? Like, how could it uh, have a chance to make any change? Like, if we would speak on the real facts, not generalizing some uh, abstract way, you know? 
First, I think the problem, we all know what it was. There is, not in the Richard Nixon sense, but in another, there is the so-called moral or silent majority. And there, probably, Erdogan is still majoritarian. So, the way I would reformulate it, and it was the same problem in Egypt, for example. You know, you never really had a majority, very rarely, this movement. So, for me, the problem is, first, you must set very clear goals, and then you must find some point where, even for a short time, you get, if not an active support, at least a kind of a benevolent sympathy from the majority. The tragedy of this protest movement, for me, for example, in Egypt, now it's clear, is that all the Takrir Square thing there, these were educated middle-class children and so on. They, they moved, this is how my Egyptian friends are telling me, they moved totally without any connection with that silent mass of majority and so on, which then immediately, of course, you get free election and then you get Muslim Brotherhood voted in and so on and so on. So uh, I think that the art is to find some topic where you can at least briefly mobilize the majority. If you, on the other hand, uh, one has to be here very, very brutal, pragmatic and inventive. Everything is permitted, not crime, of course, but what I mean is like, uh, tactical alliances, international pressure, and so on, all that. But uh, I think that there is one tragic fa fact to which I don't see an easy solution, which is that effectively, and my leftist friends are so angry at me when I say this, we effectively don't have an alter alternative model of global economy that we can oppose to global capitalism. We can play games here and there, make it a little bit more effective and so on and so on. But I am listening to all people who pretend to have business. The one against which I am most opposed is the so-called local democracy. You know, forget about the state, organize yourself locally, local communities, and so on. This all works when you have an efficient state, even a very strong state. For example, once I laughed so much when some of my friends from Venezuela told me, but we have local self-management. Yes, I told them, and you have the big boss, Hugo Chavez. No, you know. It's very interesting how all this local democracy works even better with a relatively authoritarian uh, state. But I want to ask you something else, you. Okay, you overthrew you, you people there, whatever, Saakashvili. Now you have another oligarch. Is he any better? Actually, what I wanted to ask is that uh, I don't find this radical change is right. I mean, like, the social movements that are bringing some values. I don't think that the situation is uh, um, as fast changing as previously, if you ask him about my country, but yeah. it's more, as I said, like uh, some values came on the top yeah. that was not there before. And uh, we are just afraid not to lose these values right now. And this is my question, like, 
uh, what is the point when like values and money they don't talk always well but um, uh, like what is what is the point like to find the dialogue between them like what do you mean by money people who have money or mm, let's say in another way like because for example, uh, like uh, the the very good example was this one this Kezi card because here was a um, particular plan to implement particular project by government and for example I don't know third bridge of Istanbul or something yeah, yeah, yeah. that all the intellectual society is opposing it let's say so the public is opposing it and so on but at some point they are just um, not heard and the progress process is going on so I just ask myself this question like all the time it's like a strange question like what is my role you know like uh, can shall I participate anymore in anything? Because in reality, nothing changed in the end of the day. Here, I wouldn't be again such a pessimist. For example, I know relatively better, relative, but still, situation in Egypt. Some people say oh, it's even worse now, military dictatorship. Other people are telling me precisely at the level that you mentioned. No, Egypt is not the same as it was five years ago. The whole society is alive in the sense that free trade unions, feminists, this, that, you know, the whole civil society is alive. And the military did not succeed in crushing this. And this is there, waiting. There will be a new opportunity, it will go better, and so on, and so on. So uh, here, at this level, again, I'm not such a pessimist. I gave, before I mention the example of here, Turkey, okay, you can say you've lost, Erdogan is back. It's not a simple, look at the last elections. I, no, I'm not fetishizing election results, but the fact how the Kurds succeeded, other parties, and so on, this does signal, nonetheless, something changing in something changing in society. So I would say, of course, it's a long, patient struggle, and so on and so on. You know what's for me the sad thing, and if I understand you correctly, you hinted at this. Uh, even communist regimes, which office this was for me the most depressive thing about my experience of living in a communist regime. Official ideology was people are constructing socialism, blah, blah. But no, what those in power really wanted was people's apathy and indifference. You know, uh, uh, it took me a long time to understand this. Socialist education was, if you look at it from official values, total fiasco. Nobody took the ruling ideology seriously. People were cynics, mocking it. But then I asked myself, what is those in power wanted this? They wanted cynical, depoliticized people who think, don't mess with politics, politics is a whore, and so on. And it's perfect, you know. This is why I have here a disagreement with some of my Greek friends, even with us, pussy riot friends, who still believe in this power of scandal, obscenity, you know. I claim, no, for it, uh, already under communism, especially when it was losing, 
communists were using jokes, obscenity, and so on, just to demoralize people. For example, one of the most depressing things I heard from Poland is that after Jaruzelski made coup d'etat to crush Solidarność in 1980, you know what those in power consciously did? All of a sudden, Western por pornography was widely available. Oriental spirituality, Buddhism training, drugs, all available, just to keep people depoliticized, distracted, and so on. And that's the problem today, because precisely by staying out, you are a perfect subject. Those in power don't want you to participate too much. They want you desperate, privatized, and so on, and so on. That's why, uh, that's where people are often wrong in relationship to Hollywood where you have a Hollywood individualist hero who fights the state, is totally cynical and so on. But this is a perfect subject today. Subject in the sense of Untertan, subordinated to power. Power doesn't want active fanatics today who fight for it. No, they want people who are silently desperate, cynical, caring just about their pleasures and so on. Maybe even your Erdogan knows it didn't he propose, you told me of who, a perfect variation of that old Christian aura et labora, you know, work and pray. Somebody told me, was it you or who, that one of the electoral slogans of Erdogan was, uh, shop and pray, consume and pray, you know. It's a perfect slogan for today, I claim, no? But listen, tell me, you didn't answer me, I'm really interested. Is the new guy any better from Saakashvili? Oh yeah, okay, sorry, yes, okay, okay, okay. You see, I want a dialogue with public and this communist totalitarian, yes, and so on. <laughs> ah, is this organized you?